Jonah chapter 4. But to Jonah, this seemed very wrong and he became angry. He prayed to the Lord, Isn't this what I said, Lord, when I was still at home? This is what I tried to forestall by fleeing to Tarshish. I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. Now, Lord, take away my life, for it's better for me to die than to live. But the Lord replied, Is it right for you to be angry? Jonah had gone out and sat down at a place east of the city. There he made himself a shelter, sat in its shade and waited to see what would happen to the city. Then the Lord God provided a leafy plant and made it grow up over Jonah to give shade for his head to ease his discomfort. And Jonah was very happy about the plant. But at dawn the next day, God provided a worm which, he, which chewed the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God provided a scorching east wind and the sun blazed on Jonah's head so that he grew faint. He wanted to die and said, it would be better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, is it right for you to be angry about the plant? It is, he said, and I'm so angry, I wish I were dead. But the Lord said, you have been concerned about this plant, though you did not tend it or make it grow. It sprang up overnight and died overnight. And should I not have concern for the great city of Nineveh, in which there are more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left, and also many animals? I think everybody likes a happy ending to a film. If you pay good money to go and see a movie, you don't want to come out depressed at the end of it. You want to come out feeling positive. You like the happy endings. And movie makers in the US know that. Uh, it's very common practice for the big studios when they make a movie to make it with two different endings. And they'll have little sample groups who will come and watch those movies and then ultimately they'll decide which will be the one that gets released. And invariably, it's the happy ending. That's the one that people want to see. Based on their feedback, they will put out that movie with the happy ending. Now we come this morning to the end of the story of Jonah, Jonah chapter 4. And if you want a happy ending to this story, here's my suggestion. When you get home, just white out chapter 4. Okay, uh, chapter 3 would be a fantastic place for this book to finish. Jonah would be a brilliant book if it were just those three chapters. I mean, think about what you'd have. You'd have the call of Jonah in chapter 1. Uh, we'd have him, uh, would have his account of running away from God. We'd see his experience inside the whale. He would be saved by God. And then we would see Jonah being obedient and doing what God has called him to do, to go to Nineveh and preach to the people there. We'd see the whole city repent and then have a look at it. Chapter 3, verse number 10. This would be the close of the book. When God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he relented and did not bring upon them the destruction that he had threatened. Amen. Full stop. I mean, that would be a great ending for the book, wouldn't it? And they all lived happily ever after. But that's not where the story ends. There's one more chapter, and it's a chapter that almost seems to sour the good things that have happened in the story so far. But it's not until we reach the final chapter that we actually figure out the main point of this book. 
Last week in chapter 3, we saw that the whole of the city of Nineveh has responded to Jonah's preaching. Now, you'd think Jonah would have had some sense of satisfaction that things have actually worked out quite well, uh, that the people have listened to what he had to say. Well, how does he feel? Well, just at the end of chapter 3, uh, God has shown his compassion and listen to what it says at the beginning of chapter 4, chapter 4, verse 1. But to Jonah, this seemed very wrong. That is, God having compassion on these people. And he became angry. He prayed to the Lord, isn't this what I said when I was still at home? This is what I tried to forestall by fleeing to Tarshish. I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamities. Now, Lord, take away my life, for it's better for me to die than to live. Jonah is angry with God. And what's he angry about? Well, he's angry that God didn't bring about the destruction that he'd said he would on the city of Nineveh. He's angry that God is compassionate. There's a phrase that gets used there in verse number two where he says you are gracious and compassionate, God, and slow to anger and abounding in love. That expression or something that closely approximates that comes up eight other times in the pages of the Old Testament. Strange thing with this one, though, is this is the only time it's ever used as a criticism. Every other time that it's used in the Old Testament, it's something that we should compliment God for. But not here. Jonah sees this as being a criticism of God. Jonah's saying, I knew this would happen. I knew that you would have compassion on these people, and that is why I ran. Don't you just hate that about God, the way that he's so loving and gracious and compassionate? It's one of his really annoying traits, isn't it? And that's what Jonah's trying to say. And the crazy thing is, Jonah is serious. He didn't seem to mind God being compassionate and gracious when he was sucking in lungs full of water just two chapters earlier. He was pretty happy that God was then a gracious and compassionate God. But now he's angry. In fact, he's beyond angry. He's fuming. He says he's so angry that he wishes that he were dead. And God poses one very simple question to him. You'll see it there in verse number four. Have you any right to be angry? And did you see what Jonah's answer was? It's right there in verse... Oh, oh, hang on. He hasn't got an answer. He can't say anything to that. Jonah doesn't care if he has any right to be angry. He's angry that God has saved these people and that's all there is to it. Seems quite outrageous behaviour, doesn't it? After shaking his fist at God and telling him that he's angry about all of this, Jonah heads out to the eastern side of the city. You'll see it there in verse number five. Jonah went out and sat down at a place east of the city and there he made himself a shelter, sat in its shade and waited to see what would happen to the city. Now, at first glance, it's a little difficult to understand what this means. But I think it's a pretty safe guess to say that he's gone out there to get a good view of the city, out to the east of the city, and he's gone out there hoping that the city might still be destroyed. He wants to watch and see if God does destroy them. Can you believe this guy? He wants to see these people wiped out. He wants to see them judged by God. He wants to see them destroyed, and he doesn't want to see them saved. Well, God decides it's time to teach Jonah a lesson, and I think we'd all agree it's about time Jonah learned a lesson. God, however, is going to be a little more gentle in his approach than we would perhaps be. 
Jonah is on the edge of the town watching to see whether or not the city will be destroyed and God caused a vine to grow up over the top of where Jonah was sitting, made Jonah's life comfortable. But then God sent a worm to eat the vine and the vine is destroyed and compounded the problem by sending a a hot east wind to blow on Jonah as he's sitting out on the edge of town. And all of this is a little too much. But have a look carefully at what Jonah says, verse number 8. When the sun rose, God provided a scorching east wind and the sun blazed on Jonah's head so that he grew faint. He wanted to die and said, it would be better for me to die than to live. He's just as angry about the vine dying as he is about the Ninevites not dying. In fact, he repeats exactly the same words in both those instances. And again, God asks him the really simple question about the vine when he's angry and about Nineveh being spared. Verse number nine, do you have any right to be angry about the vine? Jonah thinks he does. Jonah thinks he does have the right to be angry. He didn't plant it, he didn't make it grow, but he still has the right, he believes. God's shown quite remarkable patience with Jonah, hasn't he? I mean, he's been a, an enormous pain to work with and yet God perseveres with him and continues to be gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love. He's willing to work gently with him. God points out to Jonah that he doesn't have any right to be angry about the vine. He didn't plant it, he didn't tend it, he didn't make it grow. It wasn't Jonah's vine. So he has no right to be angry about it dying. But the point that God wants to make, the whole point of growing that vine, is this in verse 11. But Nineveh has more than 120,000 people who can't tell their right hand from their left and many cattle as well. Should I not be concerned about that great city? I love the way that he describes the Ninevites. They don't even know their left hand from their right hand. That's how lost these people are. That's the plight of those who don't know God. I mean, what God's effectively saying to Jonah is, what do you want me to do, Jonah? You want to to get all angry about a plant dying, yet you'd be perfectly happy to see a whole city full of people die. Is that what you're suggesting? Can't you see that there is something wrong with the way that you're thinking, Jonah? And that's where the book ends. So what are we supposed to make of this strange book? How do you sum up the message of the book of Jonah? What are we supposed to learn from it? I've been saying all the way along that we've got to remember that this book wasn't written to us. This was written to the people of Israel. Jonah was a prophet for the people of Israel, the northern part of the kingdom. It was written for them as the original audience. And the people of Israel, well, they're actually a bit like Jonah. They're running away from God. They have no interest in living faithful and obedient lives as God's people, except when they get into big trouble. And that's when they want to call on God and expect that God will step in and help them. Israel will fall. And ironically, it will be the Assyrians, the Ninevites, who will be the ones who overtake them. And they will fall because of their repeated unfaithfulness to God. This is how the fall gets summed up in the book of 2 Kings. 
The Lord warned Israel and Judah through all his prophets and says, Turn from your evil ways. Observe my commands and decrees in accordance with the entire law that I commanded your fathers to obey and that I delivered to you through my servants, the prophets. But they would not listen and were as stiff-necked as their fathers who did not trust the Lord their God. So I think in some ways the message of the book of Jonah, it's given to them before they're finally overtaken by the Assyrians. It would be about 50 years after Jonah that the Assyrians would come in and take over Israel. But the message is, wake up to yourself. Start taking God seriously. If the godless Ninevites can do it, then surely you've got to have some chance of being able to do it, haven't you, Israel? But it goes a little bit deeper than that. God's plan was always to bring blessing to all the nations, not just his chosen people, Israel and Judah. God's plan was for the whole world to be blessed through Abraham and Abraham's family. Jonah should be thrilled that the Ninevites have actually turned to God. But his attitude shows just how far he and the people of Israel are from where God wants them to be. But what about the message of the book of Jonah for us? Well, in some ways, I think it's actually pretty obvious. What we see in the book of Jonah is this huge contrast between Jonah's attitude towards the lost and God's attitude toward the lost. See, on the one hand, we've got Jonah and if you had to kind of rate your concern for the loss from 1 to 10, well, Jonah's down the zero end, isn't he? I mean, he's sitting there out there desperately hoping that these people will not just be lost but completely destroyed. But then on the other end of the spectrum, we've got God, who's gracious and compassionate, uh, slow to anger and abounding in love. God has this incredible concern for those people who don't know him. God looks at a repentant Ninevite town and shows overwhelming compassion towards them. And we're not surprised. It's the same attitude that we see God show in sending his son into this world. Jesus summed up the reason for his reason for coming into the world. He said, the son of man came to seek and save that which is lost. That's God's attitude for the lost to seek and to save the lost. That's Jesus' attitude to the lost, to seek and to save the lost. Not Jonah's attitude to the lost. So you've got to ask ask yourself the question when you see this, where do I fit on that spectrum? I mean, no one wants to say they're down the Jonah end of things. They don't want to be a zero. And I'm pretty sure we're not going to kind of make it up to the God end of the spectrum either. But where do you think you might fit? Would you like to think that you were maybe somewhere around the middle here? Or maybe a little bit closer to God than you are to Jonah? Maybe just a, a 66, just a, a low credit, you know, something along those lines? Where do you think you fit in terms of your concern for the lost, those who who don't know God, don't know how it is to actually even enter into that relationship with God. We'd like to think that we were more up the God end of the scale than the Jonah end. 
Way back in 1796, the General Assembly of the uh, Church of Scotland, which is where the Presbyterian Church of Australia comes from, they were considering the possibility of the establishment of a foreign mission program. And one of the ministers in the assembly was totally opposed to the idea, and in the minutes of that assembly, this is what we read, he said, to spread abroad the knowledge of the gospel among barbarous and heathen nations seems to me highly preposterous. Kind of warms your heart, makes you feel proud to be a Presbyterian, doesn't it? It was going to be another 35 years after that that they finally did get around to establishing a foreign mission program. But it's almost the spirit of Jonah alive and well there, isn't it? It's saying that there's people who don't deserve to be saved, who ought not to be given the message about Jesus. But I think there can be a little bit of Jonah in all of us. We can sometimes think that there are individuals or people groups who really don't deserve to hear the gospel or that God shouldn't really bother with them. And can I say, if you've ever thought that or felt that, and I know I have, then that's the spirit of Jonah alive and well in us, isn't it? So here are three things that we need to put into practice from the book of Jonah. One of the, mo- one of the most important things in this story for me, is that Jonah can say, if you have a look in chapter 2, verse 8, this is his prayer from inside the whale. He says, those who cling to worthless idols forfeit the grace that could be theirs. But I, with a song of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will make good. Salvation comes from the Lord. And then, just a few days later, he's sitting out on the hill desperately hoping that the city gets destroyed. Criticises God for saving the Ninevites. So if we truly understand what God has done for us in Jesus, if we know what it is to be forgiven, if we truly understand that we have eternal life because God is gracious, then we should have a concern for those who don't know God. We will want other people to know what it is that we have. Now, this doesn't mean that you have to go to the city of Nineveh and preach there. In fact, it doesn't even mean you have to become Billy Graham and preach anywhere. That's not what God's calling us to do. But at the very least, we have to have a concern for those that we know who don't know God. And one of the best ways that we can do that is to just pray for them. Think about the people who you know specifically, people in your family, people that you're in close contact with who don't know God and pray for them. Pray that God would stir their hearts. Pray that God would be gracious to them. Pray that they'd come to understand who Jesus is. So if you have a heart for the lost, the very least that you can do is express that heart by talking to God. But we do also need to be ready to tell others about what Jesus has done. God doesn't expect you to be able to explain every facet of the Christian faith or every doctrine within Christianity. He just expects you to share the hope that you have with other people. God wants us to have a heart that beats like his. A heart for those who don't know Jesus. He wants us to join him 
in letting people know about his compassion. He wants us to join him in enabling other people to find out more about Jesus.